The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget... All of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, you'll hear a conversation I had about the Italian Renaissance with historian Catherine Fletcher. Catherine's the author of a new book, The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance. 
We spoke about an age characterised by remarkable artistic achievements and why we need to understand the turbulent social conditions behind those achievements. So your new book, The Beauty and the Terror, offers an alternative history of the Italian Renaissance. So what were some of the common misconceptions that you wanted to address? I feel that a lot of the time when we talk about the Italian Renaissance, we take this handful of great men and great artworks and look at them really quite out of context. Because nowadays, if you go on holiday to Florence or Rome or wherever, you can walk around and you see these wonderful works of art, you know, which are wonderful in a gallery. And you probably follow the trail of what I call the Ninja Turtle artists. There are four Ninja Turtles and they're called Donatello, Raphael, Leonardo and Michelangelo. And maybe you might have also heard of Machiavelli or the Borgias or the Medici, but we tend to take these people quite out of their social context and just think about them as this clutch of great men and famous images. So you've got your kind of Mona Lisa um, and so forth. But, you know, where did they actually come from? So before we launch any further, you mentioned that we need to view these figures in their social context. What is that basic social context that we need to understand before we talk about Italy in the Renaissance era? Okay, well, let me give you a few dates. So we're looking at here, really, at the later part of the Renaissance, what sometimes gets called the High Renaissance in art history. Um, so these people are around at the same time as Christopher Columbus, 1492, voyaging to the New World. I mean, all the um, there's a lot of Italians, actually, who were involved in these early processes of um, exploration and discovery, as they saw it, um, colonization, as we might now put it, um, in not only in the Americas, but in West Africa. So that is one whole context. There is a whole context of religious change that is going on. There's a bit of a tendency to assume that Italy was simply all Catholic at the time in the context of the Reformation and rise of Protestantism. Actually, that's more complicated. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there is a war going on. So from 1494 to 1559 on the Italian peninsula, there is um, a series of wars between the big powers of Europe. So that's France and Spain. Um, really, Spain at this time is quite a new country, just recently consolidated. And the King of Spain also happens to be the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who's running the German and Austrian states as well. So there's a big European war. Um, on the Italian peninsula, bringing in um, all of the small Italian states. It is quite complicated, but I think, you know, the reason, partly because it's quite complicated, people go, oh, gosh, it's, it's difficult. It's, actually, it's not all that difficult. If you think about the 20th century, just how we talk about 20th century art and literature and so on, we will often say First World War literature, interwar, Second World War, post-war. We don't talk about Italian Renaissance artworks in those categories of war. And I just, you know, want to sort of explore why that is. But I think we'll, we'll dig into all those themes that you mentioned there in a bit more detail later. Um, but another question before we go much further is about how Italy was ruled at this time, because Italy was, as you mentioned, there was a variety of different states. Yes. Yeah, so in um, Italy at the 
end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century, you have got five large states and multiple small states. So your large states are Naples. And the rulers of Naples at the start of all this are an illegitimate branch of um, Spanish Aragonese royalty. Um, you've got the Papal States, which are governed by the Pope, much bigger than just the little Vatican City is these days. That's actually a sizable chunk of territory. You've got Florence, city-state of Florence and surrounding territories, Milan and Venice. Um, and then you've got a bunch of small um, duchies and marquisates and so on, like the city-states of Urbino and Mantua and Ferrara and Modena. Um, a lot of those little princes, little princes I say, <laughs> are really important military commanders and they make their money um, by hiring, them, hiring themselves out to run armies for the larger states. And that's partly the way that we get all these glorious artworks um, like it works by people like um, Mantegna, so the Camera degli Sposi in Mantua and uh, um, the Tribes of Caesar, which are now at Hampton Court Palace. Um, all those things are, are paid for, at least to some extent, by um, wartime adventuring. And who were the real power brokers in the majority of these states? Were they the, the royal figures or were they merchants or bankers? Well, this is different from state to state. So some of the states are principalities, princely states with one ruler on top who is a duke or a king or the pope. Um, others of them are republics. So the republics are Florence and Venice and Genoa. They all have slightly different political structures. Some smaller places as well, Lucca and Siena. So who runs all these Italian states? So we have got some states that are run by kings and princes um, and you might have heard of Machiavelli's book, The Prince. Well, this is a very a book very much about how princes in this situation might operate when they come to be in charge of a state. Um, but Machiavelli also wrote about republics and the republican structure, so a structure of government without a prince or with somebody who is just elected for life, like the Doge of Venice. That's also quite a common political structure. So you get that in Florence and Venice and Genoa and some smaller places too. And there's a lot of debate about the sort of sustainability of that type of government. Um, so, for example, Florence in the 1530s makes a transition from being a republic to being a duchy, which is a very, very painful um, scenario and very kind of a brutal and contested one. Um, and part of what is going on on the Italian peninsula in this period is that there is a struggle between France and Spain for who is going to have the most influence. So this is also about big powers getting um, this very wealthy part of Europe, as Italy is a very, very rich place at this point, into their sphere of influence. You mentioned wealth there, but what other conditions made Italy ripe to become such a cultural hub? Well, Italy... You know, in the Renaissance, it's at the crossroads of the Mediterranean. It's a major trading centre. So you get all sorts of goods that come in um, along the Silk Roads from China and India and from Afghanistan. They come along, they get traded through um, Constantinople um, or through Alexandria in Egypt and um, across the Mediterranean and up into Italy. And from there, they go on to the rest of Europe. So Italy, up until the point, sort of this is later on in the 16th century, when the opening up of Atlantic trade really starts to change these patterns, Italy's 
hugely wealthy. Um, it's got very rich merchants. It's also got its own sort of domestic industry around sort of wool, wool and silks and all sorts of textiles. So this is what is paying in part for the amazing developments of art and culture that we get on the Italian peninsula at the time. And it's an interesting factor in relation to banking and art, which is that um, Christian bankers technically are not meant to lend money at interest. It's a sin, um, very much like the current Islamic prohibition on lending money at interest. Um, that, that still applies today. Christians have really got rid of it now, but obviously a lot of bankers in effect did this. And so in order to kind of repent for their sins, they would donate large sums of money to their local churches to pay for artworks in churches. These also incidentally had the ability, had the, you know, the side effect of making their family chapels look very wealthy and glamorous, which wasn't a bad thing. Um, but th there is this kind of relationship between um, art commissioning, particularly religious works, and repenting for your sin in the way that you've done commerce. So you think that the, the reputation that Renaissance Italy has for being essentially the pinnacle of fine art is, mm. is relatively fair? Well, it's amazing. I mean, there are some fabulous developments in art that take place gradually over this period. I mean, you know, the, the difference in the kind of, you know, emotional and human content of 16th century Renaissance art, the kind of level of realism in some of the portraits um, is quite dramatically different from what has gone before in terms of, you know, all the developments of perspective, which is perhaps the most common thing that we associate, associate with Renaissance art. I mean, those are important, those not to be knocked. But I think that um, there have been some problematic ways in which this story has been told in the context of a kind of great progress of Western civilization. And one of the things that I quite wanted to do with this book is to problematise that a bit and say, look, um, it is a fact that while, um, you know, all this art is being commissioned and isn't it great, there is another side to that, which is some of it has, has been commissioned off the back of people's military contracts. Some of it is being commissioned, I mean, most notably the Mona Lisa, um, off the back of... Um, but by a merchant, um, Francesco del Giocondo, Mr. Mona Lisa, um, who is making money from slave trading, um, from sugar trading out of Madeira, from some of these colonisation projects um, with the Portuguese. Now, you know, that is not to say the Mona Lisa isn't a great painting, but I think if we know a little bit more about the background, we can see that sometimes these artworks come from quite a dark place and perhaps don't necessarily have the... Um, purely the, the great civilising process and um, associations that people might have made 50 or 100 years ago. I think the idea there of the shadow side mm. of these great achievements is something that recurs again and again in your book. And it's not just um, in the case of art. Could you give some examples of how that's true in other areas as well? Well, I think, you know, there are all sorts of things. One, one name that is quite famous today, probably thanks to James Bond, um, is Beretta. Um, Beretta, the arms company, um, were are, are around now um, and were around 500 years ago. They're first documented in 1526, selling guns um, to the Venetian state. 
And so this there's this whole world of military technology, development of firearms, proliferation of weapons that um, is important. Um, Leonardo da Vinci is one of the people who draws designs in this period for all sorts of military technology, including new sort of self-lighting handguns, which are considered you know, generally very dangerous because people can hide them under their cloak and pull them out and assassinate somebody. You know, these are, these are not, not nice things. Um, so there's all that kind of world as well. We've got a whole world that I write about in relation to um, pornography in the sex industry. Now, you know, a lot of the a lot of the great artists um, who are involved in um, you know literature and major commissions, like some of Raphael's team, after the death of Raphael, go on to produce um, a set of pornographic. Um, illustrations of different sexual positions, which they have printed up, whether or not they exactly know that the printer is doing the printing up is a different question, but which get printed up and are then banned in 1520s Rome as being completely unacceptable. So there's a real kind of tension around the new technology of print and shifting sexual cultures and religious responses to that. Um, So that's a whole different aspect of the kind of, you know, slightly the underground of the the art world. So rapid change could be both positive and negative. I think that's right. I think that, um, you know, this is a society, one of the interesting things about kind of the term Renaissance for this society is that we label all these people Renaissance, but they're actually dealing with a lot of things in the 16th century that are very new, whether that is the new world, which obviously new to them, not new to any of the people who are already living there, but, you know, there's a new world, there are these new military technologies developing in the context of the Italian wars. I mean, they get to have enormous problems with um, what to do with people who've been ex-soldiers, who've been demobilised and are turning to banditry and so forth. I mean, there are big social problems there. There are shifting attitudes around religion. There are lots of challenges reflecting um, what's going on further north in Europe with Martin Luther and the Reformation, and those play out in um, in Italy too. So people like Michelangelo, um, people like Vittoria Colonna, who's um, a very prominent woman um, who is a poet and a wife and then widow of a military commander, and um, you know, the, these people are very associated with sort of proto-Protestant ideas in a movement that's called a spirituale. Now, that bit very rarely comes up in relation to Michelangelo's career. Uh, but, you know, Colonna ends up being investigated for heresy. And there's a lot of real concern about, you know, what is the, what the correct idea is when it comes to religion. And um, to pick up on that point, um, and Martin Luther and the Reformation that convulsed a lot of Europe mm. at this time, how did that play out um, community to community within Italy? I think actually to understand what happens in terms of the response to the Reformation in Rome and from the popes, you have to understand what is going on in Italy in terms of the wars and the geopolitics. Because um, the vast majority of the popes from this period are from wealthy Italian families with political interests. And the two popes who are most directly responsible for, you know, responding to Luther are members of the Medici family, who are the rulers of Florence. So they have got an interest in um, recovering and then maintaining their family's power in Florence, which comes and goes and comes and goes in this period. Um, So they have got their main eye on 
what is happening in their home city. And okay, yeah, they try and deal with what is going on with Luther, but to be honest, it does not feel like it's top of their priorities. And when you see what is happening in Italy, and you look at it from that point of view, it becomes a lot clearer why um, it took the Catholic Church nearly three decades to even get to calling um, the Council of Trent in response to what Luther was saying, um, because they're just entirely preoccupied with other things. So politics and religion are just inextricably linked here. Yeah, I mean, in the figure of the Pope, um, you know, these days the Pope is straightforward as the head of the Catholic Church. There is that tiny, tiny enclave of the Vatican City um, that sits in the middle of Rome. Um, But beyond that, they've got no particular secular responsibilities. Whereas in um, 16th century Italy, the Pope is responsible for the government of a whole chunk of central Italy, just as any other um, king or prince would be. So they've got to manage the city of Rome, they've got to manage the city of Bologna, and they've got to manage a whole set of territory in between, um, quite a lot of which has, um, you know, a a sort of nobility that likes to do its own thing, um, that will rebel, that will go off and, you know, become mercenaries for somebody else <laughs> you know it's a really really difficult job of government alongside being the kind of you know the representative of christ on earth which is a kind of weird combination <laughs> and one that often doesn't work very smoothly a bit of a conflict of interest yes. yeah absolutely to change topic slightly mm-hmm. um you also speak in the book about women's experiences and you um acknowledge that some people have argued that women didn't even experience a renaissance. What's your thought on that? So the renaissance was the big example that was used back in the 70s by um, a well-known feminist historian called Joan Kelly who wanted to make the case that actually the kind of conventional historical periods often did represent women's experience very well. Um, And she sort of said, you know, did women really have a renaissance? Now, since then, I think the terms of the debate have changed a little bit because at the time when she was writing, it really did look like the Renaissance was just some great men. Um, now, I think once you dig down a bit, you see that there are actually a lot of women involved in writing and literary production, um, whether that's poems or prose or treatises. So people like um, Tullia D'Aragona, Veronica Franco, um, Vittoria Colonna, um, Veronica Gambera, all these women are you know, writing poetry, writing essays, exchanging letters, producing material for publications, very involved in artistic circles. And there are some, albeit fewer women, who are involved in um, the visual arts, painting, sculpture, and so forth. And so there are clearly women who are involved in Renaissance culture, although I think it's kind of fair point that um, lower down social scale, um, both women and men are probably less affected by Renaissance culture. Um, and the, you can make that criticism about who really has a Renaissance here, um, you know, might, might apply um, on a class basis as much as it applies on a basis of gender. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think what I would like is for people who love the artwork which I think, you know, which is fabulous. And, you know, it is great to be able to go and tour Florence, tour Rome, look around the galleries, really take in some of the wonders of it. 
is to try and understand a little bit more how those paintings um, fits into a society which is really going through some very dramatic social transitions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. It seems throughout the course of this discussion that something that's come up again and again is is almost terminology and the use of the phrase Italian Renaissance just comes mm-hmm. with it comes with so much baggage and so many preconceptions. How do you view that term and whether it may be easier to just talk about 16th century Italy or 15th century Italy? So for quite I mean it's been quite some time since in in academic circles people really stopped using the term Renaissance um, in a lot of contexts um, and started talking instead about late medieval Italy or early modern Italy instead to give a sense that, um, you know, the Renaissance is a kind of limited phenomenon and perhaps primarily is useful to talk about certain cultural developments um, and some um, civic developments around political theorising related to ancient texts. I mean, it was clearly like there was this a real phenomenon happening in Italy, which is involves some um, intellectuals turning back to um, classical Greek and Latin texts and wanting to draw from them anew in terms of how they related to um, politics and learning and so forth. Um, so, th- so that's real, but of course that is not everything that is going on in society. Um, on the other hand, the idea of Italian Renaissance has a lot of purchase with the public. I think a lot of people, you know, have some sense of who they might associate with that. Have It has some name recognition. So uh, ditching it all together is really quite um, tricky because you lose a handy piece of shorthand that, that has some meaning. When you, when you think about terms like that, are they retrospectively applied in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been felt? Or is that not the case? So if I was an ordinary man or woman on the street in Italy at this time, would I feel like I was living in a time of particular change or progression, do you think? Well, you might see that there were different kinds of paintings going up in your churches and different styles of palace being put up. And you might or might not approve of this dreadful modern architecture. You know, I mean, people, you probably have, you might, you might have an opinion about that because some of the culture is very visible um, and very widely visible. Um, so it's not that you wouldn't notice at all, although this would probably be quite a slow development in terms of cultural change. Um, 
But on the other hand, there are lots of things that are just very unchanging and cyclical in terms of um, the agricultural seasons, um, the liturgical character of the church, you know, when do, when do you have your kind of harvest festival, when you have your Easter celebrations, where you have local saints days. I mean, those are quite consistent. And, you know, really, if you are um, working the fields somewhere in Tuscany, growing your vines, do you particularly notice if you are now paying your rent to the agent of a different lord from the one you had three years ago. Well, maybe if they start to increase the rent, you might complain, but actually you might not have a great deal of interest in precisely who is ruling or the ruling structures. So I think there are kind of lots, there are lots of um, interesting issues there. And of course, one of the big problems for anybody writing about this is, of course, the people who are actually involved in the cultural activity left loads of sources saying how important they were and what they thought and what they were doing and wrote letters to each other and had, you know, jobs as diplomats. So they corresponded a lot. And then the people who were doing farming or building the palaces, and you know, they didn't write a great deal. They did, you know, okay, you get bits of testimony, you get things that you can read between the lines of court cases, but it's quite hard to find a voice for what the ordinary person in this world thought, what the ordinary soldier thought about his life. You get the commanders, you get other people, not so much. We've mentioned this throughout, but just to delve into it into, in a bit more detail... I think a lot of people would not even associate this period with war or know that know much about the Italian wars. To what extent did they shape Italian society in this period? How would their impact have been felt in, in civilian circumstances? Obviously quite an uneven impact on civilians of the wars. In the worst periods, though, um, the invading armies run scorched earth policies. So on their retreat from whichever battle they have lost, they will burn the lands. Um, there are real, you know, there, there are the real process of exacerbating famine, exacerbating scarcity, so that you know an invading army will come in and basically buy up all the food. They may well pay for all the food rather than stealing it, but there won't be any food left for anybody else. So you have that kind of phenomenon of just the sheer pressure of the weight of um, armies being present in Italy and having to live on something. You then have this massive fear of um, sieges and sacks. So a lot of the way that warfare plays out in this period, you do have these big um, pitched battles, which could last, you know, a day or so, and that's it. But you also have these very, very long sieges where you will have an army pitch up outside a town and basically wait it out, trying to starve the town out. Now, if you were stuck inside that siege... Um, that is not a fun situation. I mean, you are kind of, on the one hand, probably have dwindling food supplies. You have stories about people eating rats and cats and anything else that's available. Um, you have, you're trying kind of overnight to patch up the walls to make sure they can't be breached. It's really like a pretty horrible scenario to be in. Equally, um, in the camp, if you're a soldier on the outside of that, you have to put up with freezing temperatures in winter, boiling temperatures in summer, marching through mud, again, food shortages and so on. And one of the ways that soldiers kind of compensated for their toil in these circumstances is occasionally by being allowed to sack a conquered city 
which is one of the most kind of horrific processes of mass murder and rape and just, you know, and people being taken hostage for ransom and tortured and so forth. And so all of this stuff is kind of going on, um, particularly the first sort of three and a bit decades of the 16th century. And, you know, there are, there's a kind of real climate of fear behind it. And it does touch on what the famous names do. So when um, Leonardo da Vinci, for example, is um, basically offering his services to the Duke of Milan, he writes this sort of 10-point letter um, of all the different things that he can offer in terms of skills in military technology. Then he says at the end, oh, by the way, I can also do art and sculpture. And I think that's sort of, of, you know, these are the skills that are in demand are you know, design of fortifications. Michelangelo does that work as well in Florence. He becomes like head of fortifying the city walls. And you know, so that there is a lot of overlap. And um, Leonardo goes off and makes military maps for Cesare Borgia when Cesare Borgia is trying to build himself a private state um, in what had previously been papal territory. So there are lots of cases where actually the careers literally overlap, as well as this being just general background context. And what about um, colonial expansion? Well, European colonial expansion, can we see the impact of that in a similar way? We certainly do start to see evidence of um, money coming back from Spanish conquests in the New World. In fact, one of the big differences between the two big powers, um, Spain and France, in terms of how they get on in the Italian wars, is that Spain, from about the 1530s, 1540s, has a really significant stream of expropriated silver from the New World, which it can use to finance war efforts in Europe. So like on this very literal level of who has money to win the Italian wars, it's the country that has got the biggest imperial project um, first, and that's that's Spain, and it's not France. I mean, France only really gets into um, its expansion into Canada in the 1540s is the very, very, very early stage of it. So, um, so this has a, a very basic financial impact, but it also has a cultural impact. So you start to see um, gifts being brought. You start to see um, travellers um, from the Americas coming over to Europe. Uh, but there are now in the Medici collection some spectacular kind of um, Aztec masks um, gems. There is um, there are kind of featherwork objects that are brought over. So you get this kind of cultural exchange. You get and you get the exchange of food as well. So it's hard to imagine these days um, Italian cuisine without the tomato in it. The tomato arrives in Italy um, from the Americas in this new period of trading. Um, because people go out and they start to bring back all these plants. They set up botanical gardens. A lot of botanical gardens in Europe date to this period. And they're set up in part to try and cultivate these new crops that are coming in from the new world. And people don't really like tomatoes initially. They go, so like, what is this? What is this weird sort of yellowy fruit? Not, not sure. But they, they start growing them. Um, and so that's just one example of an enormous change in what people eat. That begins just here. We mentioned at the start the the big name figures, mm-hmm. the kind of star-studded cast of the Renaissance, Leonardo, yeah. Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Who do you think has been eclipsed or not paid enough attention to? I think certainly the women have not got the attention that they deserve. And I think that's partly because um, a lot of the prominent women in arts and cultural circles are writing in in Italian. And you, there is always a sub, some vision, a sense of like getting lost in translation. So I think that's... Um, that's slightly difficult sometimes for modern audiences to appreciate some of the technical innovations that they were making in poetry writing, um, particularly when you have these sort of sequences of poetry that's saying, you know, isn't Philip II of Spain great? Uh, we really want him to go off and, you know, beat the Ottoman Empire at in, the, in these naval battles. You know, subject matter can feel quite dated, even though at the time the, the poems that... Um, these women writing would be quite, you know, would be technically important. So some of that has been, is, is cultural things that were, that were important at the time, but perhaps don't feel so comfortable now. But there is some quite extraordinary writing that I think really does stand the test of time in terms of subject matter as well. So some of the um, criticisms of war um, that were written by a woman called Lara Ceretta, writing at the end of the 15th century, you know, really making the case against what would be the standard view at the time, which is kind of the importance of the military arts as, um, you know, the first thing that a nobleman should know. And sort of saying, well, no, actually, we should value other types of knowledge. You know, we should value learning. We should value, value science. This is not, you know, all about war and masculinity. So there are some really interesting bits of... Um, writing and work out there that I think still have resonance today. So if we were to look at Italy at the beginning of this period and the end of this period, what were some of the biggest changes you might see? I mean, politically, the big change between the late 15th century and the late 16th century is there has been a rise of Spanish dominance across the whole of the Italian peninsula. So by... Um, you know, very, quite early on in the 16th century, the Kingdom of Naples is being run by Spanish viceroys. It doesn't have its own independent monarchy anymore. It is just subject to the Spanish kings. They have also um, gained a great deal of power and influence in, um, in Florence and in Milan. Venice has stayed quite independent, but it's in a tough position. And again, in Rome with the popes, there's a lot of influence from Spain. Um, so politically, that is that kind of drive towards a lot more Spanish influence on the Italian peninsula, which is a product of, you know, in the broad sense, Spanish imperialism. So you've got that change. You've also had, um, in religious terms, the Reformation, a lot of kind of flirtation with sort of proto-Protestant ideas in Italy, and then really the lid being put on that quite firmly after the first few decades, when the Counter-Reformation um, really properly gets underway and says, OK, we're going to put, we are going to do some reform in the Catholic Church, but it's going to be these things, but on these terms and not those other things that we disapprove of. Without going into all the theological detail, they, there is that very interesting process. And um, we've also seen this you know, real flourishing of women's writing, perhaps as a response to the fact that you have a lot of women who are widowed during the wars, perhaps in response to the fact that during the wars, a lot of men are away 
and the women are left in charge of households and estates and farms and so forth and have to do their own thing. Um, so there are really kind of multiple cultural developments. Um, but it's, it's very, very interesting that I think over the course of this period, you have an Italy which goes from being a very, very strong um, financial um, wealthy place to being relatively rather less that, and but all but managing to keep somehow its cultural reputation as a source of knowledge and culture and art, and um, and actually that that kind of reputation of the sort of made in Italy and the value of that sort of art and culture as something that can be exported out is is continued to keep its grip. After working on this book for so long, um, how has your perspective of Renaissance Italy been altered? And how do you think we should look back on this time? I think what I would like, really, what I would really like is for people who love the artwork, which I think, you know, which is fabulous. And, you know, it is great to be able to go and tour Florence, tour Rome, look around the galleries, really take in some of the wonders of it. And... Um, is to try and understand a little bit more how those paintings um, and the literature as well fits into a society which is really going through some very dramatic social transitions, some very, very kind of uncomfortable international politics and, you know, not least the impact of war. And to perhaps think about how remarkable it is that so much great art can be produced in a country which is simultaneously being subjected to this, um, you know, this horrific experience of invasion and defence and siege and sacks and, you know, real terror in the face of um, these invading armies. That was Catherine Fletcher. The Beauty and the Terror... An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance is out now, published by Bodley Head. I also spoke to Catherine about the remarkable life of the Renaissance artist Artemisia for this podcast. You can find that at historyextra.com forward slash Artemisia. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Vanessa Harding will be discussing the Great Plague of 1665.